may his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we're looking at Psalm 146, and this is a psalm um, about hope. It's about hope. One thing sports fans can understand is hope and false hope. Uh, NBA free agency has been going on the last couple of weeks. If you're a basketball fan, you probably know about that. And one particular team that I like to follow just for the sheer delight of watching them fail is the New York Knicks. And the New York Knicks for two years have been planning and plotting to sign a big free agent this summer, especially Kevin Durant. That's who they wanted. And everybody thought that was happening. All the NBA insiders thought Durant was going to the Knicks, but instead he went to the Knicks' little brother in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Nets. And the Knicks, as they usually do, came up with nothing. You know, you would think that players would want to go play for probably one of the two or three marquee franchises in the NBA in Madison Square Garden in the heart of Manhattan. But for Knicks fans, for decades at this point, it's been false hope after false hope. They hate it. I love it. I think it's hilarious. But sports fans know a lot about the power of hope and the disappointment of false hope. If you're not a sports fan, you're like, come on, be serious, Luke. And I hate to say it, but I am being being serious. We really do put hope and false hope in sports. But of course, there are much more significant things in our lives that we hope for, right? And that we hope in. And uh, one of the worst things that can happen to a person is that he or she becomes hopeless. To be hopeless is quite a terrible situation to find yourself in. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, in his novel Cat's Cradle, um, tells about the main character finding an important book that is discovered that no one has read in centuries. And the book is called, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? Great title, right? What can man, what can thoughtful man hope for mankind on earth given the experience of the past million years? And this is a famous book. People have wanted to read it in the story. And so the chief character is anxious to read the book and he opens it up and he finds written in the book one word, nothing, nothing. Now that's a really depressing way to start a sermon and to look at things. But if we're honest, it's hard to have hope sometimes. It's hard to have hope sometimes. Broken relationships, unfulfilled expectations, hard circumstances, unhappy jobs, all of these and countless other things bruise and batter our hope. And so a question for you to ask at the outset of our time in the scripture this morning is, do you have hope today? Where is your hope tank? Is it full? Is it empty? Is it somewhere in between? Do you have hope or has your hope been shattered? Has your hope been wrecked? That's such an important question for the life of faith. 
Because hope doesn't just impact our future lives, the things we're hoping in. Hope impacts our present lives as well. And Psalm 146 is a song about the hope that followers of Jesus can have. It's one of the five final psalms of the Psalter. They're called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. They all start with that phrase, praise the Lord. And these psalms are intended to, uh, to stir up the faith and the hope of believers and to remind us that our hope is built on nothing less, right? As the hymn says, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Will did a great job preaching through the first three psalms. And so as we continue this summer series, I want to look at this psalm near the end of the book. And I want to show you three steps towards hope in our study together, or three points this morning. First, we're going to look at what is hope. What is hope? Second, false hopes. And then third, the true hope. First then, what is hope? You know, before digging into the text itself, we need to ask that uh, as a prior question. You know, we don't really have a single English word that summarizes what the Bible means when it uses the word that we translate as hope. And in fact, in our culture, hope is often defined as being basically synonymous with optimism. Hope and optimism are often seen to be basically the same thing. For example, someone might ask you, do you believe the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year? I see people nodding like this. I agree. Um, More significantly, do you believe your kid is going to get into that school? Even more significantly, do you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? And to all those questions, someone might answer, and it would be a very common answer, oh, I don't know for sure, but I sure hope so. I don't know for sure, but I sure hope so. And let me tell you, that is not what the Bible means, and it's not what Psalm 146 means when it speaks about or sings, in this case, about hope. The Bible's definition of hope is this. Hope is faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he has promised. Hope is faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he's promised. It's not mere optimism. And so to possess that kind of hope, a biblical hope, a faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he's promised is, as the psalmist says, a blessing. That's why verse 5 is the thematic center of the psalm, where the psalmist says, Blessed is the one whose hope is in the Lord his God. So hope is a faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he has promised. And furthermore, the Bible's view of hope is that hope is something that impacts our future lives. Being fully confident and faithfully confident about the future, about God's future world, that he will bring, has an impact on our lives in the present. Hope something that is intended to change your life in the here and the now because of what you know to be true about the future. And really, that's the way that all forms of hope work, whether they're true hopes or false hopes. Whatever we hope for our future affects our presence. But only Christian hope, only gospel hope, only hope in the Lord, is how the psalmist puts it, affects in our way, our present in a way that leads to blessing. Think about it like this. Imagine with me two people who have the exact same job. They both work 12 hours a day on an assembly line. 
screwing part A into part B over and over and over again, six days a week, 12 hours a day. But imagine that these two people who do identical jobs for an identical amount of time are told different things. One person is told that at the end of one year, he will make $10,000 for his work. Anyone age 12 and under is like, whoa, right? But the second person is told that at the end of one year of the exact same labor, they will make $1 billion. Now, I bet you would agree with me that the guarantee of the future totally changes the way person B sees his or her job as it relates to how person A sees his or her job. Identical circumstances are processed in completely different ways because of two different futures that are believed in. Because of two different types of hope. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit is asking of you now as we sit here and listen to Psalm 146 together is this. How is Christian hope operating in your heart today? Do you have a faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he has promised? One very practical way just in my life personally that I've been slowly attempting to actually grow in the hope of the gospel, to actually grow in that faith-fueled conviction is to meditate and focus on one particular petition of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus tells us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And really, that's a different sermon for a different day. But for now, suffice it to say, what exactly is Jesus asking us to pray for there? If nothing else, he's asking us to pray that our entire lives will be reframed by what we know to be true about the future. That one day God will make all things new. When Jesus comes back and ushers in his kingdom with fullness. And as we meditate on that and think about that, hopefully our Entire lives are reframed. Our families, our work, our hobbies, everything. So when you hope for the kingdom to come, it's intended to impact the now of your life. So are you doing that? That's one of the things that this psalm summons you and summons me to consider. So true Christian hope is faith-fueled conviction that God will do what he's promised. Secondly, we need to look at false hopes. When we're exercising real hope, gospel hope, hope in the Lord, we can sing or say what the psalmist says in verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. But guess what? I mean, come on. That's really hard. It's really hard to sing that and then feel your heart burn with that truth. It's really easy to sing it or say it but be stone dead cold to the reality of those words on the inside. And one of the main reasons why that's so hard is because all of us have a proclivity towards going after false hopes. All of us cling to futures that do not match the reality of God's future. Part of the remnants of sin in our lives means that we believe and we trust and we lean into false hopes and we reject the reality of God's future world. And I think we all know this intuitively, no matter where we are on our faith journeys, whether we're Christians or not, I think we can all agree that we tend to put our hope in things that disappoint. 
We tend to put our hope in things that disappoint. And these things that we put our hope in aren't bad things usually. They're actually usually really good things. They're just not things that are meant to shelter our ultimate hopes. C.S. Lewis, as usual, puts it better than anyone else who isn't in the Bible. Listen to what he says in Mere Christianity. This is a longer quote, but I can read long C.S. Lewis quotes, right? You're okay with that? I'm okay with it, so I'm going to do it. Okay, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. Most people, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Is that not resonance? Something has evaded us. Does that not speak to the massive dissatisfaction that we feel and that really is at the heart of the spirit of our age? Lewis's point is the same as the psalmist. When we trust in false hopes, we will always feel as if something has evaded us. There's all kinds of false hopes that we trust in. The psalmist gives us at least two. Look in verse 3. First, there's the false hope of people. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. That word princes in verse 3, as you might imagine refers to the leaders or the nobles of a given society. So the psalmist is saying that we sometimes have a tendency to place our hope in political leaders, political movements, political parties, believing, hoping that they can institute change in our world that will give us a reason to hope. Yet it's not without reason that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. Psalm 146 is reminding us what serves us well to remember all the time, but especially like in election years. And that's this. Every president, every king, and every prime minister has a term limit. Death ends every reign except the reign of God. Politics and people are not the means of establishing God's kingdom. And no leader, however charismatic they may be, has messianic promise. We place our hope in leaders. We place our hope in other types of people, though, even in our own families. We think that our children and their success are worth, worthy of our full hope. We place our hope in spiritual leaders, in pastors, And in counselors, believing that if we go to their church or listen to the right sermons or heed the right counsel, all's going to be well. But all of these are false hopes. One theologian writes this, For one man to put confidence in another is as as if one beggar should ask alms of another, or one cripple should carry another, or the blind lead the blind. 
The point of the psalmist is that the greatest of people are but wisps of smoke, right? Verse 4 says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. There's no lasting hope in people. A second false hope that the psalmist mentions is plans. There's the false hope of people. There's the false hope of plans. Verse 4, again, on that very day, his plans and all of our plans perish. We do this all the time, don't we? We think and we hope that when our retirement plans are realized, all will be well. We believe that when our plan for a better marriage or a better neighborhood or a better parenting strategy, when it finally is implemented, it's going to solve the problems we face. Hey, I hope that my plan and my vision for this church is going to make me feel all happy and warm and fuzzy and wonderful inside all the time. Now, I experienced this just the last couple of weeks, and I'm sure you will if you go away this summer as well. When we plan to go on trips, we want the best vacations ever, don't we? We want to put these idyllic pictures on Facebook so that everyone could look at us and think, wow, they are the envy of civilization. And we want to be happy and enjoy everything about God's wonderful creation and to have sweet, wonderful family time. And you know what? In God's grace, we do get a good bit of that. But guess what I realized again this year? When you place your hope in vacation, it's going to leave you empty on the inside because on vacation, kids still fight each other. Newsflash. On vacations, I still wake up irritable. On vacations, my heart still wanders away from Jesus. Whether I'm in the mountains of Colorado or on the beaches of Florida. We tend to hope in these things, though. And we do have a responsibility to work towards these things, but they're not intended to be our ultimate hope sources, right? The psalmist says, on that very day, his plans perish. So again, can I ask you? Can I ask you? In what ways is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you through this text? Perhaps, perhaps, as you open up your heart to his spirit, he's convicting you of placing your hope in things that you believe you have control over, such as your plans. Perhaps he's convicting you of placing your hope in money, believing that it will keep you secure and happy. Perhaps he's convicting you of placing your hope in the powerful and important people in your life who will inevitably, as great though they may be, they will inevitably let you down in reality. The Spirit asks us here what Jesus tells us to do in John 15, to abide in him. And in doing so, we hope in the Lord. The Spirit is calling all of us, me and you, to repent, to turn, to turn from our false hopes, to come to our senses again in faith. He's asking us this morning to see our one true hope, the Lord God, in his mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's look at that third. We've seen what hope is. We've seen false hopes and now the true hope. Verse 5, blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Happy, happy is the one who confides in the work of God for us in Jesus Christ. Happy is the one who trusts in the mercy of Jesus. The psalm's second half is full of reasons why our one true hope, our lasting confidence is in the Lord. I can give you three reasons. You can probably see more if you look at this text on your own, but three for our purposes today. First, the Lord is our true hope, verse 6, because he is powerful. Look at what it says there. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Have you ever wondered why is it that the Psalms so often 
sing to us with creation language. They're all over the Psalms. The Psalms are always drawing us back to the dawn of our universe in Genesis chapter 1. The reason that that's the case is because the Psalms are trying to, uh, to set up ramparts around our hearts. Ramparts of faith that help us to hope in the God who is so powerful that he flung this massive universe into existence all by himself. And it's in Jesus that we see the power of God most vividly. Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God come near. And if you read Jesus' life, you'll see him constantly demonstrating his power over creation. But he does that with a purpose. He does that to show us that he's worthy of our trust and hope. Think about just one example. Remember when Jesus walks on the water? Gospel Matthew chapter 14, he's walking on the water out to his disciples on the boat. And Peter sees him and Peter for just a moment is able to walk with Jesus. But then he looks down and he falls into the sea and calls out for Jesus to rescue him, right? Now, why does Jesus walk on water? I mean, it's not just random miracle day to prove that I'm a deity. Jesus' power is intended to evoke in the people that witness it a particular faith. It's intended to show that he's trustworthy, which is why Jesus says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? The power of God is intended to show us that we can trust him. We can hope in him. He is omnipotent, able to overcome all of our issues, all of our struggles, and all of our problems. Secondly, the Lord is our true hope because he's faithful. Look at the end of verse 6. God keeps Faith forever, the text tells us. Now, that's a necessary addendum to the concept of the power of God. You see, a God who is merely, a God who is merely all-powerful is not a God that we can trust will be for us. Islam has a God who is merely all-powerful. The main thing about Islam's view of Allah is that he is powerful. It's not that he is good. It's not that he is gracious. It's not that he is faithful. Now, our God, the one true God, is all-powerful, but that's not enough, actually, to give us hope. We also need to know that he loves us, which is why the psalmist says he uses his power to demonstrate that he's steadfast in his love for us. He is faithful. That idea... That idea of God keeping faith forever means that God will always, 100% of the time, in every instance, fulfill and keep every promise he's ever made to every single one of us. You know, uh, the past few days, Marianne took a trip with our oldest, and I had the two smaller ones with me at home, and things went well. Everyone's still alive when it was dad mode at the house. Everyone did great. But there's like five, six, seven things that I said I would do with the kids that we forgot to do. We, I, I forgot. And then there's some things I remembered and then it was just really hard (laughs) to do what I had promised. That's like a daily occurrence for me. And I think that I'm probably not alone. It's probably a daily occurrence for most of us to forget to do something we said we would do. And then when we do remember to struggle to actually accomplish it. By contrast, 
The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our God, is not ever like that, and he never does that. And again, we see the faithfulness to God, to his promises, is preeminently displayed for us in his Son, in Jesus. To use Paul's language, Jesus is the yes and amen of every promise and every action of God in our world. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, that Abraham's family would be a blessing to every nation. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to David, that he would always, always have one of his children on the throne. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Israel in exile, that one day they would be able to again come home to God. Jesus proves that God is the promise keeper extraordinaire. In Jesus, God is faithful squared. He's faithful plus. He's faithful par excellence. And so because of that, we can have hope in him. Last reason, the Lord is our true hope. Verse 7, 8, and 9. Because he's caring. He's caring. You believe that? These are great concluding verses. And they remind us very, very simply that God loves people. God loves you. And in particular, especially, God loves unworthy, messed up, hurting, sick, saddened, harmed, oppressed, and weary people. That is to say, he loves you. And he loves me. God cares for the refugee, verse 9. He cares for the orphan, verse 9. He cares for the widow. He cares for those who are estranged, for those who are imprisoned, for those who are oppressed and abandoned. You know, as I was reading these verses and studying this psalm and meditating on it this week, I just couldn't help but reflect on some of the pictures we're seeing on our border. And no matter your political persuasion or what you think about border security, the pictures of families and children being detained in horribly overcrowded surroundings in the valley should trouble us. And as I was reflecting on these verses this week, I was reminded again as the Holy Spirit was teaching me and speaking to me that these things grieve the heart of a God who loves the sojourner. God is loving and compassionate towards those who are crammed side by side into hot, smelly, rodent-infested cages wondering what's going to happen to them next. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you right now, no matter what's going on in your head or in your heart. God cares for you. You can trust him. You can put your hope in him. And you know that that's true because God has sent to you Jesus. God has sent you Jesus, who at the cross became a victim of injustice so that you can have God's perfect justice. Jesus hungered so that we might have plenty. Jesus was imprisoned by Roman guards and buried under the ground so that we can be set free. Jesus was bowed down even to death so that we can be lifted up. Jesus lived as a sojourner, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by the world so that we can all by faith have a home. Jesus is the final proof that God is worthy of our hope. One of the best movies about hope or any other subject is The Shawshank Redemption. Probably one of my top three favorite movies of all time. It's about a man named Andy Dufresne who's played by Tim Robbins who is uh, wrongfully imprisoned um, 
falsely accused of murdering his wife, and he's sent to serve a life sentence at Shawshank Prison in Maine. And uh, it's about his life in the prison and his life after, well, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Shawshank, come on. Come on. Um, and one of the beautiful pictures of hope in that film is uh, one afternoon, some of the prisoners are tarring the roof of one of the buildings of the prison. And all the other prisoners are out doing their work. And Andy, the hero of the story, is uh, doing some work for the warden in the warden's office. And he's left alone in the warden's office. And he sees in the warden's office a record player. And on the record player is a record. And the opera that's on the record is The Marriage of Figaro. And Dufresne, being an educated man, knows this opera well. And so what he does is he goes and he locks himself inside the warden's office, knowing it's going to cost him dearly. And he puts the record on and plays it through the loudspeaker so that every single inmate at Shawshank Prison can hear it. Red, Andy's best friend, played by Morgan Freeman, who also wonderfully narrates the story. I think he will narrate our experience of heaven as well, by the way. Uh, His voice is insane. So here's what Red says about this experience. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that you don't just feel free, but that in Jesus, you are free. In Jesus, the drab little cage of your life melts away. He has freed you. You are alive. You've been rescued. God has proven that he's faithful to all of his promises to rebels like us in Jesus. And because that's true, we can run away from our false hopes, from princes, from the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation, from our plans which perish, and trust in Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let's pray.